This episode of the Chef's Manifesto podcast is made possible by Knorr, the world's most chosen food brand. Knorr's Future 50 Foods inspires dietary diversity by identifying 50 of the foods we should eat more of for the health of ourselves and of the planet. By incorporating these and other diverse foods into our meals, they are enabling more diversity in the foods grown. Knorr will inspire and educate people all over the world to cook with these foods and will partner with suppliers and retailers to make these foods accessible and affordable. We the chefs, we the chefs, are working together to create a better food future. future. I am George, Andy, Tom from Nigeria, Switzerland, Los Angeles, London, India, New Zealand. Ingredients are medicine. Ingredients are superpowers. Food is joy. Food is love. Food is is life. Hello and welcome to the Chef's Manifesto podcast. I'm your host, eco-chef Tom Hunt, a columnist and the author of Cookbook, Eating for Pleasure, People and Planet. In this episode, we'll be looking at biodiversity and how we can support that by diversifying the plants we put on our plates, because they all have a unique but necessary characteristics that not only provide us with a varied diet, but interact with all wildlife around them. We'll discuss the impact of climate change on ingredients and also look at animal welfare. 60% of global biodiversity loss is connected to industrial food production and consumption. Mexico, for example, where maize originated, has lost 80% of its varieties since the 1930s. Please join the Chef's Manifesto. Subscribe, rate and like us below. Your feedback is important to us not only so that we can make sure we are tapping into the subjects you care about, but to help with our reach too. In this episode, I'll be talking to biodiversity expert and scientist Fabrice de Klerk about how to support biodiversity through food. But first, I'm thrilled to be joined by a chef, entrepreneur and co-founder of Tender Greens, a restaurant group which provides seasonal home cooking through supply chain innovation. With over 30 outlets across America, his business is booming. And alongside running this company, he also speaks internationally on the topics of food justice and global sustainability initiatives. Welcome to the Chef's Manifesto podcast, Eric. Good morning. Thank you. So you're calling us from New York. I am. The wonders of technology. I'd just love to hear a little bit about Tender Greens and how the idea began and your values behind the business. So I'm a chef by training and background. And in 2006, the food world was bifurcated. Uh, There were very, very expensive restaurants and there were a lot of cheaper fast food restaurants and uh, as a fine dining chef, I couldn't afford the uh, the food that I, I cooked and, and didn't connect with the food that I could afford. So we wanted to uh, fill the middle and bring good food to more people, to the other 99% using supply chain integrity, the product integrity, the technique, and the attention to food and, and, and flavor uh, that we had always held to the, to the luxury market but bring it to as many people as possible uh, by leveraging the systems that work so well in uh, fast food restaurants that uh, can scale. And and we believed that if we could provide really good food at a price point that people could afford uh, in a context that they understood and that was fast, that we could scale good behavior. You have a truly entrepreneurial perspective on food sustainability. I'd love to know 
if you think this is kind of part of your success, really, and as what has enabled the expansion of your restaurants, is it linked in any way? I'm my own consumer. Uh, so I, I have an intuition and an emotion around food. And then as an entrepreneur, I look at um, what's missing uh, or what is unsolved in the marketplace. And that's the opportunity. That's the place for innovation. And if we get it right, and if we're, we're able to execute and the timing's right and, and, uh, and we find our audience, then we can make money and that money fuels scale and, and in scale you, you expand impact. I mean, with the boom in awareness around the climate crisis and food sustainability, a lot of businesses are arguably greenwashing their brand and making false claims about or false environmental claims about their seasonality or their locality or how their food was grown. Obviously, you've kind of taken this approach of integrity and transparency with your business. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about now, this is a big question, but how can chefs and other stakeholders ensure sustainability of their foods and processes along the supply chain and avoid greenwashing? How can they have that integrity? Yeah, it's it's the same question as I might ask uh, someone of faith. You know, you you can say you're you're a person of faith, but how do you show up every day, every minute in your life? And do the do your actions align with your your aspirations? And, and I think that for, for those of us who believe that food is at the center of everything and that if we make the right choices, that we can have a positive impact on the world, whether it's health and wellness or environmental uh, conditions, then if every day we're, we're operating with this belief system that every purchase, every action that we take uh, has, has a cause and effect and we want to be on the right side of that. Um, so that we're doing more good than harm. Uh, I think the other important thing is around greenwashing is absolute self-awareness and, and transparency and honesty. Nobody's pure. Um, we may have pure aspirations, and I have a very pure vision of the world. But uh, as an entrepreneur uh, and as a business, I'm also pragmatic. And mm -hmm. we have to be honest with our capacity to deliver on our ambitions and if we are honest by saying, here's my view of the world, and in my best day, in my best form, this is what I believe in and what I want to do. But I also understand that there are conditions, whether it's economic conditions, supply chain conditions, staffing conditions, uh, that require me to make certain compromises in business the same way that I make compromises in my own life. And that I'm honest and transparent when those compromises are made so that there's no greenwashing, there no, there's no spin on, on behavior, uh, and, and there's this honesty and also a lack of judgment. And it's, in, and it's in that last one that we don't look around at others with this judgy perspective. Um, as long as everybody is honest about where they're at and committed to getting to a better place each day, then I think we're moving in the right direction. It's when we, we lie about it or we're not self-aware uh, in our own right that we start to send a schizophrenic message down through the supply chain and confuse everybody. So headline is transparency, honesty, and, and softening of, of judgment of others. 
Mm -hmm. I mean, and I believe that certification bodies have a good role to play in, in this as well. In the UK, we have the Soil Association who certify organic products. And that's one way you can ensure it's organic. Of course, you have equivalents, but then you're, it's again, it's about the relationship with that supplier. And there is a lot of trust and honesty in this conversation, I think, and, and how we purchase our food. But you speak internationally around the world on these subjects of food sustainability and we're talking specifically today about biodiversity on this podcast. So I was wondering what your thoughts were on the importance of biodiversity within the food system. Uh, they're incredibly important. And, you know, I think we can look at it, you know, a few ways. I said earlier, food is at the center of all things that we care about and food's impact on, on the environment is is a huge one. And, and, and unfortunately, over the last 60 or 70 years, uh, we've been complicit in, in, in causing more damage than, than good. Uh, I think for, you know, for consumers and, and chefs, it's important both from a nutritional perspective and obviously an environmental perspective and a flavor perspective. Uh, if you go wide in the, the, the world's pantry and begin to look at some of the ingredients that are available deeper and deeper in the forest and, and further and further at the edge of the food system, we find superfoods. We find these ingredients that are new um, and provide new textures, new stories, and new nutrition that delivered in the right context becomes part of the food system, much like quinoa or moringa or, or, or others that have been really successful. And then the other story, I think, is... is uh, this going deep into common ingredients. So, you know, heirloom tomatoes is probably the most famous one where uh, when I was growing up, there was, you know, one or two types of tomatoes. Now there, are, you can find 30 different varieties at the, at the farmer's market and you expect it. And I'm working with a group out of Colombia right now that is producing, growing and producing ancient heirloom varieties of sugarcane. And for me, looking at a commodity like sugar, uh, somewhat dismissively. I'm not, I don't have a sweet tooth. I don't use a lot of sugar in my, my cooking. But when I, when I was introduced to this, this heirloom sugar from Colombia, it blew my mind. From, as, a, as a chef, it was as though I was tasting sugar for the first time and my mind started to race uh, with the potential of how I might use this as a condiment. And I think for again, the, the consumers and the chefs of the world, um, this daily surprise, this discovery, this magic that we find both in the range of ingredients that the world offers that just, you know, up until recently, we haven't been um, taking advantage of, or the depth of certain ingredients that we may look at as simple staples or commodities, but really hold special nuances and, and and, and stories within them uh, that are so important to us culturally, uh, environmentally, uh, and then obviously from a culinary perspective. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, now in the world, just 12 plant species are providing, I know, yeah, kind of 60% of our 
I know 75% of our calories, three are providing 60% of our calories, wheat, uh, corn and rice, or is it soya? And so just... It, it's uh, the uh, the data is, um, or the, the headline there is, it's four crops account for 60% of our calories worldwide. So it's corn, uh, wheat, rice, and soy. And those are the ones um, are, that are monocropped and fully industrialized and then processed into things that they were never meant to taste or look like. I, I think what's interesting is like if we can just break out of this mold of just using these monocrop-based industrial farmed crops to use different types of sugar like you're explaining, then we're improving agrodiversity, aren't we? But we're also in- improving biodiversity through breaking the monoculture system, which is really what is the key destroyer of biodiversity. And I would even add uh, one, one other diversity, which is cultural diversity. In the case of Colombia, these are indigenous tribes in, in, uh, deep in the, in the jungle who have been growing this cane, heirloom cane sugar and hundreds of different varieties for, for generations. And on, these are on plantations that grow many, many, many other crops. Uh, so there's biodiversity. Uh, on these plantations. It's not monocrop sugar. Uh, and then there's diversity within the single ingredient that we're talking about, sugar, cane sugar. But also there's this this uh, this family diversity, this uh, intense pride in the different heirlooms and the different nuances found just on the uh, on on each plantation and and how the terroir or the uh, the healthy soil, uh, expresses itself in, in the in the flavor and the texture of, of these products. So I, I think some of the, the romance related to cultural diversity is really important too. We don't want to lose that. Absolutely. And it also, of course, affects the taste, doesn't it? Before we wrap up, I'd just love to know if you have any advice for chefs globally about how they can drive their progress on sustainable development. I think uh, the key is uh, this is a continuation of the slow food movement, the farm to fork culture, even the local uh, ingredient movement. And for chefs to really look around their, uh, their communities, their, their culture, and, and say, what do I connect with? And how, to, how do I partner both with local farmers to explore heirloom varieties that are unique uh, and optimized for for the part of the world that I'm cooking in and also provide some cultural connection for my diners and my audience. And then where, where do I have opportunity to look beyond my local uh, ecosystem to other places that are, are growing something unique to that part of the world that I could, in a sense, sponsor and provide income and, and also protect these groups from being, you know, being sort of mowed over by the big agricultural companies. And, and my example of these small tribes in Colombia would, would be a good example of that. To Instead of buying a commodity sugar, for example, to, to buy sugar from tribes that we, we have a relationship with that produce a truly artisanal product that enhances uh, the, the diversity of the ecosystem 
and also is farmed in such a way that it, it carries all of the principles and benefits of regenerative organic uh, agriculture and, and the importance of soil health. And then, you know, as chefs, because uh, we have audiences that listen to us, um, how can we uh, share those stories both in, in edible impressions and also on the menu to, to bring awareness to, to diners who otherwise uh, just wouldn't uh, understand what's going on. Well, thank you so much for your time. I mean, it's an inspiration to know that you're doing this on such a scale. So thank you for coming on our podcast. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. My next guest is an ultra-experienced dietitian who works as the global sustainability lead for Canor at Unilever. She's here to talk more about how diversifying the foods on our shopping list can help not only our health and biodiversity, but food security, nutrition and planetary well-being. Dorothy Shaver, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So Unilever's website states that two and a half billion people use your products each day and that you had a turnover of 51 billion in 2018. As an organization, providing products to that many people is a big responsibility for not only personal but planetary health. Through working with you and your colleagues, I know that you are taking sustainability seriously, but are you doing enough? How can a global company such as Unilever help have a positive impact on our food systems? Well, I'm happy to say that working at Unilever for the past, gosh, almost 10 years, that Unilever continues to be a leader in the space of sustainability across everything from the packaging, the emissions from the factories, the products themselves, and also the behaviors that people have with our products. Unilever's overarching commitment is actually to make sustainable living commonplace, which I think is extremely inspirational, even though it does have the word commonplace in it, um, because it really focuses on mainstream consumers. And that's actually the, the reason why I work at Unilever and focus on NOR, because it is a mainstream consumer brand. Because we need people all over the world actually to do a little bit, as opposed to a few niche people to do everything perfectly when it comes to sustainability. So Nora is the, is the largest food brand in, in Unilever, and that's, that's what I work for. It's actually um, the third largest chosen brand in, in the world and the first chosen brand when it comes to food. So it's, it's an enormous brand, and it spans over 90 countries, and we reach 3.4 billion people a year through our products, which means that we have a huge opportunity and also an enormous responsibility when it comes to sustainability all the way from the nutrition in our products and also the way those products are, are grown and the ingredients in them, and beyond that, into inspiring people on how they use our products in their dishes. Understanding that a lot of, of the products that Noor has, such as the bouillon cubes or the soup powders or things like that, they're actually just a part of the dish. So we actually have the opportunity and responsibility to go beyond our products and into people's homes to help inspire them to eat better for themselves and also for the planet. Amazing. So earlier you said to me that you wanted to talk about food. Yeah. Because that's what you like yeah. talking about. And really, you know, that's what the podcast is about. It'd be interesting to know what ingredients you're using and how you're diversifying them and encouraging people to do the same. Sure. So over the past 10 years, Nora has been in the space of sustainability, working toward having 100% sustainably sourced ingredients in our products. Right now, we're at 95% sustainably sourced vegetables and herbs in our products globally. And I'm happy to say that we're, we're really moving to push that even further into our grains and also into our spices and really aiming for 100% in the future. 
And when it comes to the Sustainable Agriculture Code, which is what Unilever follows, there's a big piece in there about biodiversity and the importance of biodiversity in the way that we grow our foods and also in the types of foods that we grow. So Unilever itself has a lot of commitments to biodiversity. They are in the New Deal for Nature and also the One Planet to Business Biodiversity Plan and a variety of different things specifically on biodiversity. Knorr itself also really has made a commitment to dietary diversity, which is also crop diversity, in relation to the work that we're doing under our new purpose, which is reinventing food for humanity, which is an enormous purpose, but it is an enormous brand, and we can do that if we work with the right partners, with the right farmers, with the right suppliers, and also the right retailers. So a big program that we launched almost a year ago, so we're almost to the birthday of NOR and WWF's Future 50 Foods, and that is our big piece of work and a bit of a gift to the world about what foods we should eat more of. It's an identification of 50 foods that are highly nutritious, environmentally sustainable compared to animal-based products and also some others in their own category. They're accessible, they're available, they should be affordable if we work in the right way, and they also taste great. So those are 50 of the many foods that we should eat more of. The report itself starts by outlining many of the issues that the food system has and then goes on to identify the 50 foods. The three shifts that we're trying to make when it comes to this report and also all of the work that we're doing behind the brand is to get people to eat more vegetables, knowing that they're the most nutritious foods. They're also highly accessible. They grow everywhere and they should be affordable. Um, so more variety and more quantity of vegetables. Number two is more plant-based sources of protein. And number three is overarching more variety specifically in grains, because 60% of our plant-based calories come from just three foods, all of which are in kind of the grain category, which is corn, rice, and wheat. What is your favorite ingredient from the Future 50 Foods list? What tastes okay. the best? This isn't really fair, because when people ask me that question, I think that's it's like, you know, if you have five children, how can you really, you're not really supposed to say that one is your favorite. That's how I feel about the Future 50 Foods. So they all have their own identity, and they all have their own um, kind of space that, that, that they live in. But I'm going to have to say Bambera Groundnut. Okay. So Bambera Groundnut is um, not that known to us, but it's actually the, the third most known and eaten legume in Africa. And um, it fulfills a variety of different things. It, it's, it's wonderful from a, from a nutrition perspective. It's actually very unique in that it has protein, carbohydrate, fat, and a variety of vitamins and minerals, and almost no food has all of that, which is one of the many reasons why we have to eat a variety of foods. The other thing is that it is a natural nitrogen fixer, meaning that it pulls nitrogen from the air to nourish the soil for itself and also others. And... Um, the most important thing is that it tastes a lot like a peanut. And one of my favorite foods is peanuts. But. Yep. <laughs> Future 50 Foods were specifically chosen to address food system issues. So I feel like that's a part of the story that people don't always see. So many of them are nitrogen fixers. Many of them are drought resistant. Many of them can grow in water and don't need land. Many of them can grow in multiple climates. A lot naturally don't need pesticides or fertilizers to grow. Many of them are cover crops, meaning that they suppress the weeds and nourish the soil between harvests. And many of them can grow in damaged soils. So as we unfortunately move into move further and further into um, doing things to the food system that isn't great for it, we actually need to think of other foods that we need to grow and eat so that we can continue to have a variety of nourishing foods. 
So those of you that have been listening to the podcast probably know that I'm a serious advocate for organic and agroecological farming systems, but that isn't the be-all and end-all. When it comes down to it, also conventionally grown ingredients or, or plants and meat, of course, can have a much greater or lesser impact on the environment. So essentially, that's what you've done here with the Future 50 Foods. You've picked out a selection um, of kind of lower impact foods that really can help us as we, well, help us hopefully mitigate um, the climate crisis and improve our food system. So for those chefs and home cooks, it'd be really good for us to talk a little bit more about kind of what other ingredients that don't necessarily have to be organic are really good for the environment and a really good choice for them. Okay. Good. So I think I think one of the one of the key things that we want to really make mainstream is um, the power of food. So and the impact that our food choices have. So any food, any ingredient should and can be grown sustainably, and and hopefully those measures of sustainability will become more known to people and also to farmers and suppliers. So we can make it consistent, and then we can have a, a big consistent supply of actually sustainably grown and produced ingredients. So. People always say, you know, what can I do as, a, as an individual, as a home, a home chef or a chef in a restaurant or even in a, a big facility? And small changes really do make a big impact. So I'll give a, a couple of specific examples and I'll go into some more general ones. So lentils, for example, have a carbon footprint 43 times less than beef. Um, and also lentils have significantly more uh, fiber and also have, have a great source of protein. So that's, that's, of course, a relatively known one, I think, between you know, beef and other ones. But 43 times is much lower. And the other one that I also always kind of find surprising, and, and um, some, some people don't like me to say this, but when you replace white rice for quinoa, you, of course, double the protein. You get more than five times the fiber. You get more B vitamins potassium, magnesium, but growing quinoa emits up to 50% less greenhouse gas than white rice. So even that in itself is, I think, a pretty compelling fact. Absolutely. Um, as we then move into foods that really actually naturally nourish the land, um, beans, of course, bring nitrogen in and nourish the soil that they use and also the soil around them. So the beans and the legumes, which there are many in the Future 50 Foods, as you'd imagine, and also the yam bean root are naturally nitrogen, natural nitrogen fixers. The other one is, is cover crops. So um, cover crops naturally suppress weeds, nourish the soil between harvests, and make it less needed to have pesticides and fertilizers on the land, understanding that when we overuse pesticides and fertilizers, it, of course, damages the soil, leading to a lot of degraded soil out there. And some cover, well... Yeah. Some cover crops are to be eaten and some aren't, aren't exactly. they? Exactly. So, so, so might as well wheat. do the ones that eat them. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's a really good example yeah. of a cover crop that's good eating and, exactly. and full of nourishment. And bamboo ground nuts, of course, as I said, my favorite child. Um, and cow peas and also white icicle radish. So that's in, in there as well. Um, so those are, those are the ones that really kind of help not themselves, but also those around them. Um, and also we chose quite a few that could survive in the in the damaged grounds that we often have around us. So there's more and more droughts, there's more and more floods um, than we've ever actually seen in the past. And hopefully we can do some things to move out of that space. But um, unless we take drastic changes now, we won't be able to. So we do need to have foods that are drought resistant, like adzuki beans, broad beans, fonio, teff, 
okra moringa, which is another one of my favorites, um, and parsley root. And we also need we also need other ones that can grow in multiple environments and survive um, pretty drastic climates. Understanding the the damage that cl- climate change is doing on the ability to grow foods. I thought it'd be interesting to know a little bit about Noor's team of chefs because I understand that quite a few of your chefs are signed up with the Chef's Manifesto. From a personal perspective, I think um, one of the most rewarding parts of my job is, is really working with, with chefs. I really see chefs as, as magicians when it comes to food. We can all say anything we want about what foods people should eat and you know what nutritious foods people should have, what more environmentally friendly foods people should have. But unless we have chefs out there making them taste delicious, look cool, feel cool, then we can't actually do anything with these foods. So I've had the privilege of working with our, our chefs internally. So we have approximately 200 80 chefs that work on on Knorr, um, more or less than that, so we can say close to 300 probably. Um, and we also work with, of course, the fabulous Chefs Manifesto, so happy to say that we worked with you guys quite a bit on these foods as well. Our chefs uh, find this very, very exciting, so they have really taken a hold of Future 50 Foods. They knew the Future 50 Foods. Um, approximately a year before it came out, so they had a year to play around with them. They've now created over 500 recipes globally for these Future 50 foods, um, whether it be taking traditional top dishes and swapping out some of the grains or some of the protein or whatever and bringing in the Future 50 foods. And even beyond our chefs, what our chefs have actually um, gone out to do is, as part of us really working with other partners and creating a movement behind what we want to do around dietary diversity and crop diversity, have actually worked with um, through WWF's partnership and also with with Sodexo to train the chefs in Sodexo on how to use these foods and giving them the recipes so that they can reach the millions and millions of people that they reach across the world in hospitals and universities and schools and facilities. So, so we're happy to say that this work around um, dietary diversity has gone beyond us. And that's what we really hope to do as we move forward. So, of course, the Future 50 Foods are in in our products. Um, We'll double, we are committing to double the amount of Future 50 Foods in our products by 2025. um, And opening supply chains for some of the new ones, as only half of them are right now in our supply chain. I think it's really inspiring for chefs to hear from experts like yourselves about why it is important for chefs to really get involved with this debate about the sustainable development goals and food sustainability. Do you have any words of encouragement? I think chefs are are the next superstars. So I think um, chefs, we really want to equip chefs to get the right words out there. Uh, chefs are the ones, as I said, that make the magic out of food. Without without you guys, I mean, it would taste like nothing. And, and the main reason people eat still is because of the taste of food. So I think the, the most important that person that actually needs to be at the front line of these, of these conversations is the chefs. I think the challenge behind that is that we actually need you in the kitchen as well. So um, you guys have a, a pretty busy future if it was up to me. So I think it's extremely important, and I, I absolutely admire what, what the Chef's Manifesto is doing in, in getting the chef's voice out there. And we will continue to do our part to do the same through our chefs and also beyond. And so 2020, it's a crucial moment in time. We've got 10 years to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals. Yeah, it gives uh, me the chills. Yeah. Why do you think this decade is so important? I mean, as, as David Attenborough recently said, is, um, you know, the time is now. We're in the time of crisis. So, yeah, 10 years is a big deal, but I often like to bring people back to now because uh, if we don't act now, nothing will change in 10 years. So I think for a long time we've been saying, you know, future, 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 my kids, your kids, his kids, her kids, but in reality it's now. I mean, I want to be able to 
you know, have wine in 30 years and cocoa in 30 years. And I don't want climate change to be the reason that we don't have the plants that we love and need. So, yeah, I mean, before we finish, I can see that you've got some notes there. Is there anything else you'd like to discuss? Yeah, so I want to tell you my wish. So people often say, you know, what's what's the future of foods? Um, where are we going? Are we going into, you know, lab-grown meat? And, and, you know, are we going into crickets? Are we going into, what are we going into? And I hope that we go into um, being varietarians. We all like to label ourselves right now with what foods we don't eat. And I'd like to start labeling with what foods we do eat. So I think uh, there are so many foods out there and so many plants that we can, we can actually nourish the planet with by eating them. So by eating, as opposed to saying the damage that we're doing through the foods that we eat, we can actually um, heal ourselves and also heal the planet through the foods that we eat. So that's what I would say. I hope that people become varietarians, eat everything, eat all kinds of foods. I would agree with that entirely. I think the thing that's really scary to me from a, a nutrition kind of kind of nutrition from a biology and a chemistry perspective is um, we don't actually know. We don't actually know what's so great about kale. And when you pull apart those nutrients and make them work separately, they actually don't work as well. So we actually need all the nutrients together in foods to work best for us and also to nourish the land. And also we need those farmers to continue to thrive. And I think the hard part about it is there's some crazy stats about the fact that we actually don't even have the next generation of farmers because they're not making enough money. It's not a compelling enough um, career when in reality it should be the most rewarding career on the planet. I mean, literally on the land. And so I, th I think there's there's so much behind that from every aspect of, of, you know, emotional connection to nature and emotional connection to food that that would just completely take away that's in, in the roots of ourselves and also the roots of our, our food that brings people and food together, which is what we need to do more of. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the Chef's Manifesto podcast. Yes, thank you. My next guest is an avid brewer, gardener and chicken farmer, but also holds the post of science director at EAT a non-profit startup dedicated to transforming our global food system through science. And he has published many papers and articles on conservation, food production and environmental health. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Dr. Fabrice de Klerk. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Tom. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for coming on to the, to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be able to speak to you. So I feel like I should start big and ask you what you think are the main challenges facing our food system. Wow. So, so I mean, I think, you know, taking a step back, what, what we're really trying to emphasize is that when we look at today's food systems, there's something that is just so fundamental to our, our own health, uh, to our own well-being, is that food is failing us on, on health, dietary-related diseases is the number one driver of premature mortality and poor health globally. And then when we look at environment, and when we talk about environment, not just climate, but biodiversity, water quality, water quantity, air quality, uh, food accounts for, for often up to 80% of, of the impact that we're having on the environment. And so something so fundamental to our own well-being is also fundamental to our planetary well-being and is failing on both fronts right now. You were saying that actually 80% of the impact that we're having on the environment is agriculture. What are some of those impacts? 
Yeah, so that's that. I mean, that's that's great. So right now, there's so much attention paid to climate and really urgent attention that's needed. And as you say, it's cited food accounts for 20 to 30 percent of of greenhouse gas emissions. But when we talk about environment or the Anthropocene, you know, this era where humans are the biggest influence on the environment, I like to call it the Anthropocene because it's climate and water and biodiversity and land, etc. And so, so food occupies 40% of all currently available land right now. That 80% mm-hmm. of the fresh water we use is for food production. That 80% of the nitrogen phosphorus contamination of water is for food production. That 80 plus percent of biodiversity loss is from the shifting land from natural ecosystems to, to agricultural systems. And so even though climate is critical, it really is the has the least impact from food compared to the other ones, but, but how we produce, where we produce it, what food we produce, and how much is lost and wasted, those four things uh, determine whether or not uh, we can bring a food within environmental limits. And so, I mean, today's podcast is about biodiversity and protecting biodiversity, which, of course, its main destroyer is agriculture. I would love to know from you, how agriculture is affecting biodiversity what why i mean it doesn't necessarily make sense to the layman the first impact of, of agricultural biodiversity is is a land allocation right you, you take a if you take a tall grass prairie from the uk or from the us and you convert that into a, a row of maize or, or soybeans uh, you take a tropical forest in brazil and you convert that to sugarcane or pasture all of that is loss of, of species and 40 percent of that conversion has happened now mm-hmm. we estimate you have to keep at least half of land available for biodiversity uh, in order to to protect it so that's and that's wild biodiversity right these are uh, panda bears chimpanzees uh, gorillas uh, orangutans etc those kinds of species but the other really critical biodiversity loss the food diversity and agricultural diversity and that is that the number of species that we consume on our plates uh, is dropping radically the number of varieties of those species is, is also been dramatically reduced over the past uh, over the past century really and then also that the, the capacity for nature to support food production and we often forget how dependent we are on nature but the pollination for almonds for apricots for uh, for all sorts of stone fruit, for 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 tomatoes, uh, those are all services that nature provides us, and we don't leave space for biodiversity or nature and agriculture. We really put at risk our capacity to provide those foods, which are so fundamental uh, to uh, to human health. One of the key arguments you hear is that we're coursing towards nine ten billion population, and that we need to be able to produce up to seventy percent more food, but on the same land. How can we do that whilst kind of protecting biodiversity? Because it seems to me that monoculture and industrial agriculture is often the cause of these issues, but we're being told that that kind of needs to expand. How do you think we can work towards feeding the growing population whilst really protecting the and even restoring the biodiversity that we've lost? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and the first thing I think that's really important to, to put on the table is that increasingly we're finding that this produce food or protect biodiversity is a total fallacy. 
uh, and, mm-hmm. and it's, it's not an either-or situation. When you consider that 30 to 50% of the food that we consume, that uh, produce, sorry, is lost or wasted before it gets to our mouths. When you consider that in the U.S. and Europe, we're consuming 3,700 calories per person per day on average, but only 2,500 are required in a healthy diet. And so this is these are overproduction, overconsumption, uh, which has both a huge impact on environment, but also a huge impact on, on our health, right? Diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease related to overconsumption and kind of poor foods is, is a major driver of land that we're arguing we need to set aside for food, uh, but for more food than we actually need and for foods that aren't contributing to, to our own health. And I think this is this has sparked a lot of debate around sugar, uh, around meat in particular. But the, we estimate that again in the U.S., the U.K., and in the Western world, we're consuming four to eight times more red meat uh, than is healthy. And by reducing uh, that consumption, doesn't mean in the absence of that consumption, but, but reducing that consumption within the ranges of healthy, we find that we're able to leave enough land, half by every ecoregion for biodiversity, while also producing a healthy diet for a global population of 9 billion uh, by, by 2050. We're really surviving off this very limited shopping basket of ingredients. How do you, do you have any insight on how you think we can encourage people to diversify the ingredients they're buying? And is there any point in doing that? Does that really does that have any effect on improving or supporting biodiversity? Yeah. So, so I think uh, I think diversifying the foods that we eat is a fantastic strategy for health uh, and and for environment. Uh, and this is primarily diversifying you know, the plants that we consume, spices, fruits, nuts, vegetables, whole grains. Uh, it, it, it's incredible to me how much of the food conversation is driven by the hamburger, uh, one species, the cow, uh, or uh, the extent to which agricultural policy and trade policy is dictated by the trade of rice, maize, wheat, and soybeans when there are 30 to 60,000 edible plant species, many of which are well adapted to a diversity of environments, uh, that are all completely healthy, uh, they're all you know, adapted to either wet environments, dry environments, tropical environments, temperate environments, and I think a, a huge opportunity for producing food in a way that's climate compatible. Uh, and then on, on the consumer side or on the plate side, it's, a, it's an opportunity, an invitation to to travel the world uh, through through our plates, uh, to, uh, to to taste new flavors, to uh, uh, to work with the new new ingredients, uh, and it really is is fun in many ways. It's a way for us to engage uh, with the world through our mouths, uh, while helping to protect the planet uh, and also consuming foods that are good for us. I w- I'd love to ask you a question about. Uh, meat substitutes because it's clear that we're eating too much meat four to five times more than we should be at least in wealthier countries but the drive to kind of meat reduction has created this booming industry in plant-based alternatives and lab-grown meat or more what i would say industrially produced products now that the kind of oxymoron there for me is like as a chef and intuitively i think okay you know 
monoculture and industrial agriculture and laboratory produced foods generally aren't that good for us. They're what is driving the obesity epidemic, more or less. That's my understanding. The solution often presented by experts, scientists or whoever is these kind of industrially produced meat alternatives. Whereas I'm like, hang on a minute, what about beans? Like, what about complete amino acid profile proteins like quinoa that can be made into these alternatives? What's your advice? Do you kind of push people towards those meat alternatives? Like, you know, this is a program for chefs. I'd love to know what you think is a good alternative or advice on that. In terms of industrial or commercial, um, I think that industry and big business can do the right thing. Uh, they often don't do the right thing. And, you know, the, the, the overconsumption of sugar and of, of red meat in particular, I think, really needs to uh, be tackled quite critically. And the private sector really needs to behave much better on that front. But I do see some companies like Exki uh, that are offering fresh, diverse healthy foods at affordable prices uh, or prêt à manger here in France uh, as examples of uh, where I think we need to go. So so I think industry can behave, uh, but uh, does not have a very good track record right now and certainly very little trust. Uh, I, I think that nothing will beat a fresh, a diversity of fresh foods uh, with minimal processing. Uh, you know, as long as those are, are safe, you know, and are stored properly, these are your best bet at, at a healthy diet. Mm -hmm. uh, minimal processing uh, can also be quite interesting. Yogurts, I'm a brewer, uh, so I will certainly process my grain to create a, a nice a nice drink. I'm not going to advocate that it's completely healthy, uh, but there are forms <laughs> of processing, drying, uh, that really can contribute uh, in many of the places where we work, uh, sub-Saharan Africa, with severe and long dry seasons, processing and packaging might be a way to increase access to uh, highly diverse, nutritious foods where they may not be available. So, so I think we need to keep those on uh, on the table. Mm. Uh, when, when you talk about uh, these new meats, uh, that first, there's, there's a range of them. And I think, again, it's hard to beat something that is milling processed. So you know, my, my, my wife makes a fantastic uh, a quinoa burger, which is basically quinoa with zucchini, carrots, some egg, and some spices. And it's, it's delicious. And, and I, I'm just as happy eating that as I would be eating a hamburger. Uh, there's other ones which we would classify as highly processed, uh, which make important claims in terms of climate reduction, but which are also very high in sodium. Uh, and so my concern here is that we're going to be presenting consumers with four types of hamburger, one that's cellular agriculture, one that is uh, soy hemoglobin that's processed into a patty, one that's a veggie patty, and one that's a beef burger. Mm -hmm. All four of those have completely different environmental impacts, completely different health impacts, and the consumer's not going to have any clue uh, which one they can eat on a regular basis, which one they should eat once a week, and which one they should avoid altogether. So, so I'm much more in favor of let's stick to real ingredients. Let's keep those ingredients recognizable uh, and real. And let's develop these delicious recipes that are easy to prepare, uh, that are interesting uh, to to taste, uh, and that are, are good for us as really the, the 
basic and the most fundamental solution that we can offer. And that's where I think, you know, the chef's manifesto and chefs have so much power. Mm. And that leads nicely into my last question, which is why is it important to involve chefs in this debate around the sustainable development goals, especially as we're heading into 2020? Yeah, I think I think chefs through their artistry, through their know-how, uh, through their voice, uh, really have become a really powerful example uh, of how accessible, how feasible, how fun, and how delicious these solutions are. Uh, quite often, when we start in with my usual spiel's about the doom and gloom scenario, as we did in this podcast, people. Uh, say, oh my gosh, we're we're heading for for an age where we're going to be wearing oilcloth and uh, and hitting ourselves on on the back with with whips. That this is really about suffering and reducing comfort levels. And, and I think that chefs really help us to realize that no, uh, there are an infinite number of solutions that can help us address these problems and that don't compromise taste, affordability, pleasure. The act of eating a meal with our friends, uh, sharing foods with family, none of those are at risk in this challenge. But rather, you know, rediscovering food, rediscovering, taking the time to prepare good food, rediscovering, spending time with family and friends to eat food that was prepared with love, uh, rediscovering a diversity of ingredients and, and speaking to them. Where do they come from? Who produced it? Why do they produce it? Why is this Why is this new ingredient different from the others? How might we use it? Those are all, I think, a demonstration that as severe as the challenge is that we're faced with, there are solutions which are easy, affordable, pleasant, uh, and interesting uh, that we can take on right now. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Over the last 10 years, I've been developing a root to fruit food philosophy and manifesto, which has three key points. And the first is eat for pleasure, because at the end of the day, that does not just mean eating burgers, pizza and ice cream. It means exactly everything you've just described. It means connecting with our food, where it comes from, asking questions and learning about how it was grown and just sitting down around the table with friends to enjoy a good meal. And and I think that's what's so brilliant and interesting about this conversation and this podcast is lots of people are saying the same things in a good way. There's arguments and there's kind of difference in opinion but at the end of the day the core belief is in in kind of food sustainability is about good real food and that's what's exciting absolutely thank you so much for coming on the podcast fabrice always a pleasure tom it's been my pleasure have a good day and thanks for all the work that you and the chef's manifesto are doing thank you ciao our next guest here on the Chef's Manifesto podcast is South African-based chef Lerato Sitole. Lerato previously owned a cafe in Cape Town and today dedicates her career to bringing Africa together through food and to raising awareness about Pan-African cuisine. I'm Lerato Sitole and I'm from South Africa. I qualified as a chef. Um, at, at the moment, I live on a wine farm in South Africa and working for an NGO called Bertha Foundation. Um, and Bertha is just about social justice and creating a just world. And, food, and how this links to the Chef Manifesto is that we are 
piloting a situation at work where because we've got land, it's fertile land, and we live in a community that would benefit from sustainability and food and biodiversity and all that what we're talking about in Chef Manifesto. Um, we would love to create a space or uh, where um, locals could go back to where we come from, basically. Mm-hmm. Start planting seasonal fruit and veg, eating the fruit and veg that comes from their soil, and just enjoying that and changing the mindsets around you know, what South Africa has versus what we were told is not good enough. Mm-hmm. So that that is w- that is my mission that's what i'm busy with right now and it's something that i've been dying to do and i finally got the opportunity and now i'm just going full force yeah we're looking at the chef's manifesto point two which is yeah. protection of biodiversity and improved animal welfare it sounds like within your project that those are two things that are actually quite important yes very important i think with with that, it's um, the element of bringing pride back so that those can just stand out and be a bit more prominent because I think the awareness in South Africa is there. Mm-hmm. There is a huge need for it, but people still feel it is a bit of an inferiority, you know, with class mm-hmm. and elements of level, levels of, of achievement. It, it seems like, oh, you know, it's something that the poor do. But I mean, if you start communicating about, you know, just the climate change, the need for us to be eating what is seasonal and not be confusing the elements, then I think people will start s- s- taking it seriously and seeing the, the the seriousness out of it. So I think education, 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 and 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 just bringing back the pride, the pride of the of the nation into their food. Yeah, so important. Yeah, I'm sure you can taste it. You can taste the pride within the yeah, food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, the fact that we have got lots and lots of vegetables that grow throughout the year like there is nothing that you're going that you're going to say you can't get in winter that you're getting in summer it's like especially staple healthy necessary and like very good food soul food mm-hmm. like healing food you know is there the base is always there and then whether it's winter or summer you add a little bit you take a little bit off but the base is there and the base is just like insane it just goes on so yeah and uh so i guess one thing to discuss when it comes to biodiversity biodiversity is uh like the the variety or Mm -hmm. number of different ingredients animals bacteria in the soil Mm -hmm. it's all these things You've brought in a couple of ingredients for us to try today, um, and I'd love to know what they are. And are you cooking with them today? So I brought um, our staple diet as well, which is the maize meal. Yeah, very fine. Um, Very similar to polenta. Um, So, so much so like the sorghum. Mm -hmm. It's also a staple diet. It's also can be eaten three times a day, depending on which region you're at. So the sorghum would be from my mother's side and this would be from my father's side. And um, this 
uh, you if you want it sour then you will have to like add, add a lemon juice to it um, but the the nice thing is the sorghum how we do it at home is that we also need to marry it with the iwisa for it to ferment quicker What's the Iwisa? Um, the maize meal. Okay. Yeah. So it's it's just funny how they both work and, and marry each other along the way. Yeah. And I love the way that one came from your father and one came from your mother. I mean, That's tradition. It's like tradition. It's amazing. And I mean, even making the African beer, you need both of them, different quantities, so that they can help each other out in, in fermentation stages. Right. We are cooking it today with David, the Swedish chef. Um, we're making a savory dish and we're making a sweet dish. So, yeah. And so, um, would you, sorry to interrupt, would mm-hmm. you normally make that into something similar to a gali or, or what's the typical dish that you'd make with yeah, it? Yeah, so it goes mm-hmm. a lot with stews, uh, vegetable or, or meaty stews. Mm-hmm. It's just the base to every meal. It's absolutely delicious. Thank you so much for coming today to chat. All right. Thank you. And that's all for this episode of the Chef's Manifesto podcast. Please subscribe to join me next time when I'll be looking at how to support the people behind the food we eat. If you liked the show, please rate, comment and share our podcast. We need your help as chefs and food lovers to achieve the sustainable development goals by the year 2030. Until then, bye for now. There are eight thematic areas. Ingredients grown with respect to the earth. Friendly to oceans. Protection of biodiversity. And improved animal welfare. Investment in livelihoods. Value natural resources. And reduce waste. Waste is recyclable. Waste is unnecessary. Waste is criminal. Celebration of local and seasonal food. A focus on plant-based ingredients. Education on food safety. And healthy diets. Nutritious food that is accessible accessible and affordable to all. Chefs. Politicians. Suppliers. Farmers. Educators. Chefs together can change the world. Get involved. Get involved. Get involved.